The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Captain Jean-Luc Picard, you lead the strongest ship of the Federation fleet. You speak for your people. I have nothing to say to you. And I will resist you with my last ounce of strength. Strength is irrelevant. Resistance is futile. We wish to improve ourselves. We will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Your culture will adapt to service ours. Impossible. My culture is based on freedom and self-determination. Freedom is irrelevant. Self-determination is irrelevant. You must comply. We would rather die. Death is irrelevant. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, June 26, 2014. I'm Robert Vaughn, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing, as Ed said. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Welcome to the show today, where 519-661-3600 is the number to call to join in on the conversation. Or, if you would like to send your comments, you can do so by writing this at feedback at justratemedia.org. And if you haven't already guessed, today's show will be without Bob Metz. Unfortunately, as he is a, a little bit under the weather today, he is recovering, however, and hopes to be back next week. So I'm flying solo today and have chosen to analyze, or rip apart in my own way, if you will, several recent newspaper opinion pieces dealing with everything from climate change, Tim Hudak and the progressive conservatives, yes, once again, waiting for the Godot of government, and the radical versus the extreme. It'll be a show about identity and about nothing. But first, I'd like to start off with a bit of feedback we received by Murray, who wrote to us from Calgary, where he listens to Just Right as a podcast. And you can too, uh, can listen, by the way, uh, to our show as a podcast, all of our past shows, by going to our website at justrightmedia.org and clicking on an episode or following the link to it to the iTunes podcasts, where you can find us just as Just Right Media. Murray writes, hey guys, I just wanted to let you know that I'm thoroughly enjoying your show. I'm a 50-year-old in Calgary, new to economics and politics, and a voracious podcast listener. I found a lot of good podcasts, Tom Woods, Peter Schiff, Mark Levin, Stephen Molyneux, but really wanted to learn about the politics and economics of my own country. I'm so glad that I finally stumbled across Just Right a couple of months ago, and I'm really blown away at how good the show is. It is one of the best by far, of all the ones I've listened above, I've listed above. I started at the beginning, and I'm on episode 160 or so, and I've been sprinkling in the latest shows, too. Thanks so much for the great show. Thanks for putting me on to Ayn Rand, Paul McKeever and the Freedom Party, and all the great guests. If there's anything I can do to help, please let me know. Well, Murray. I'm flattered. Bob Metz is flattered. That was a great uh, bit of feedback. Thank you for your kind words. And I think you've already helped by spreading the word. So if any of today's listeners would like to send feedback, you too can spread the word to us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. The first opinion piece I'd like to tackle this morning is by Christina Blizzard, writing in Saturday's London Free Press, which I saw online. 
It went under the title, Ontarians Can't Escape Hudak's Tough Reality. It started off with the usual feel-good puffing that Christina usually gives the PCs before it waxed into something to which I could react. She writes, Hudak will leave his third-floor office July 2nd, two days after the fifth anniversary of him taking the office from his predecessor, John Tory. Throughout the campaign, Hudak was vilified in an unprecedented barrage of union and third-party advertising. Unprecedented? I don't know. Whoever takes over his job can expect a similar assault, especially from the powerful public sector unions who poured millions into negative ads. This is dramatically lopsided playing field we have here now where it's almost like the government unions run the province. I think we have to have a very important public discussion about who's in charge here, he said. Is it the taxpayers and the politicians on behalf of the taxpayers? Or is it the leaders of the government unions? Right now it's the latter, and it's just not healthy, Hudak said. So that's from Christina Blizzard's article. Now it seems that Mr. Hudak was blaming his loss on union leaders, and it's those union leaders who are now running the province. In Mr. Hudak's reality, it should be the taxpayer and the politicians who act on their behalf who should be running the province. Well, I think it's time for a reality check. Taxpayers and unions never run the province. The only group of people who run the province are the premier and the cabinet. Who put them there? Not the taxpayers or the unions, but the voters at large. The liberals were elected by the voters. They were elected by students living off mom and dad and a government grant, blue-collar working stiffs who give over half their income in taxes to the government, businessmen, farmers, the rich, the poor, teachers, union people, and non-union people alike. The voter is every man and no man all at the same time. They're a faceless mass of people spanning all ages and occupations. The liberals were elected by this faceless mob, something that Mr. Hudak either seems to not understand or understands all too well, but continues to try divisive politics. Mr. Hudak and his PCs lost because the mob saw precisely that he was running in order to represent just one group, the so-called taxpayers. Also, he wanted to represent one group at the expense of others, namely public sector employees. And it didn't wash with the, uh, with the voter. A leader must represent everyone in the mob, not just particular groups, and not be against just particular groups. To think that every vote cast for win and the Liberals was by a union boss or a union employee is to deny reality. The numbers don't add up. Sure, many union people voted for win, but they also voted for Horvath. And they even voted for Hudak. The notion that it is the unions which run the province is just patently false. The Liberals won because they listened to the mob and they were willing to give to the mob what the mob wanted. That is the strength of the Liberal Party. It has no principles. It flows with the polls and popular appeal. Maybe that's a principle. That is why many pundits are whispering in Mr. Hudak's ear that he, too, must put conservatism ideology aside and be more progressive 
If the public wants green, give them green. If they want windmills, give them windmills. If the public wants a multi-billion dollar high-speed rail link between small town southern Ontario and Toronto, then give it to them. Damn the cost. The public doesn't care, so why should you? The Liberals listened, and so should you. Which means, of course, that at the end of such a transformation, you too, Mr. Hudak, would be a Liberal. You and your party would lose its identity. Attaining power is all about listening to the multitude of voices in your head and going where those voices tell you to go. But of course, what kind of leader does that make Kathleen win? Not a leader at all, but a follower. There's always a way for strong leaders to gain the reins in Queen's Park. But it's not by bully tactics or union bashing or dividing the public up into voting blocks, us and them. It's by taking a reasonable approach to problems and selling those solutions. If Hudak and the PCs were to listen to the pundits and try and emulate the Liberals, they would be selling their identity, not trying to get rid of it. They would be whitewashing their reason for existing at all if they just went with the flow. If they were to become liberal, why would people vote for them when they could vote for the real liberals? No, keep your identity, PCs, uh, such as it is. Compromising one's integrity and identity to conform to the public will reduces the choices the public have going into any election. Dressing up as your opponent neither distinguishes you nor makes you relevant. And I recall when I was on the hustings trying to get re-elected to uh, the Board of Education, which I did successfully, I was in a, a union meeting of, of teachers at the Board of Ed on Dundas Street, and there must have been about 200 in attendance, plus 12 candidates vying for the positions. And to a man and woman, all of the candidates, when asked the question, what are you going to do about Mike Harris and, and, and our illegal walkout? And they said, well, you have legitimate concerns, and it's okay as long as the students aren't heard. I'm sure that we can accommodate, blah, blah, blah. I stood up and I told 200 teachers that I'd fire the lot of them. I'd fire every single one who walked out illegally, which, by the way, they were, they were doing at the time. And, of course, I was... I received a lot of guffaws and such, but also media attention. And one of the young people who was running for the same position I was whispered in my ear, says, wow, that took guts. Why would you do such a thing to such a hostile audience? And I remember my response was, you have to distinguish yourself. Here's a field of 12 candidates. They're going to remember me. I don't care if I don't get their vote, but I will get the media attention and I will get the vote out there of people who saw me. So the PCs have to distinguish themselves, not be liberals, not move to the so-called center. If the PCs adopt the policies of the liberals, they will be liberals. The irony from my vantage point is that they're already so like the liberals that this talk of moving to the left or trying to occupy the political center ground is a moot point since the PCs defined the center ground themselves 50 years ago under Robarts and Davis and have not yet deviated from that center ground. It is the liberals who have moved into the progressive conservative territory, not the PCs who have abandoned it. This jockeying for heart of John Q. public is superficial. As said before on this show, there is really no significant difference between the liberals and the PCs, between Wynn and Hudak. Each have sold their souls to the nameless, faceless public for their vote. Remember, while the Liberals won this time around, the difference in the popular vote between them and the PCs was negligible, which only shows how close they are 
in ideology. When I read Blizzard's comments, I was reminded of scenes from uh, a movie by Ayn Rand. Uh, she wrote the screenplay of it. Uh, called The Fountainhead, which is rife with commentary on compromising one's principles and integrity to appeal to the masses. And while Hudak is a far cry from a Howard Rourke, he's not too dissimilar to a Peter Keating. Let's give a listen. Mr. Rourke, the commission is yours. The board of directors of the Security Bank of Manhattan has chosen you as the architect for our new building. My congratulations, Mr. Rourke. You've done a beautiful job. The board is quite impressed by the project you submitted. It's a tremendous assignment, an unusual opportunity for an architect. You're unknown, but you'll be famous when this building is erected. It's the chance you've wanted for years, isn't it? Yes. It's yours. On one minor condition. Oh, it's just a small compromise. And when you agree to it, we can sign the contract. Oh, what is it? Well, of course, we wouldn't alter your plans in any way. It's the brilliant ingenuity of your plans that sold us on the building. But its appearance is not of any known style. The public wouldn't like it. It'd shock people. It's too different, too original. Originality is fine, but why go to extremes? There's always a middle course. So we want to preserve your beautiful design, but just soften it a little with a touch of classical dignity. Here. We've had this made to show you our general idea. It's very simple. All you have to do is copy it. We want you to adapt your building like this. Now there's a touch of the new and a touch of the old. So it's sure to please everybody. The middle of the road. Why take chances when you can stay in the middle? You see? It doesn't spoil anything, does it? And we must always compromise with the general taste, Mr. Roke. You understand that, I'm sure. No. If you want my work, you must take it as it is or not at all. But why? A building has integrity, just like a man, and just as seldom. It must be true to its own idea, have its own form, and, and serve its own purpose. But we can't depart from the popular forms of architecture. Why not? Because everybody's accepted them. I haven't. Do you wish to defy our common standards? I set my own standards. Well, do you intend to fight against the whole world? If necessary. But after all, we are your clients and it's your job to serve us. I don't build in order to have clients. I have clients in order to build. Mr. Rourke, we can't argue about this. The decision of our board was final. We want these changes. Will you accept the commission on our terms or not? You realize, of course, your whole future is at stake. This may be your last chance. Well? Yes or no, Mr. Rock? No. that I seek nothing for myself, Mr. Wyland. My only motive is a selfless concern for my fellow men. The new building of the Security Bank is such an important undertaking, and you hold the controlling interest, Mr. Wyland. The board of directors has attempted to pick an architect quite unsuccessfully. They will accept anyone you choose, and I felt it my duty to offer you my advice. Whom do you recommend? The rising star of the profession, Peter Keating. No other architect can equal his ability. That, Mr. Wyland, is my sincere opinion. I quite believe you. You do? Of course. But, Mr. Tilly, why should I consider your opinion? Well, after all, 
I am the architectural critic of the banner. My dear Tui, don't confuse me with my readers. I, I took the liberty of bringing you some samples of Peter Keating's best work. You may judge for yourself if you have seen any of these buildings. I have. They were excellent 2,000 years ago when they were built for the first time. Oh, but surely you're not in favor of so-called modern architecture. It's worthless because it's merely the work of a few unbridled individualists. Artistic value is achieved collectively by each man subordinating himself to the standards of the majority. I read that in your column yesterday. You did? Thank you. Now, the greatness of Peter Keating's personality lies in the fact that there is no personality stamped upon his buildings. Quite true. Thus, he represents not himself, but the multitude of all men together. And produces great big marble bromides. <laughs> I believe I'm failing to sell you, Peter Keating. Why, no. You're succeeding. Your Keating is worthless. So he's probably the right choice for that building. He's sure to be popular. You wouldn't expect me to pick a man of merit, would you? I've never hired a good architect for any of the banks, hotels, or other commercial structures I've built. I give the public what it wants, including your column, Mr. Tui. Am I to understand that you would choose Peter Keating? I really don't care. One of those fashionable architects is just as inept as another. And, of course, you can just replace Peter Keating with Mr. Hudak, and I think that you get the idea of what went wrong with the, uh, with the PC's campaign. Try to be everything to everybody. No personality. Give the public what it wants. But then they turned around and said, well, we're going to do all that, but in the last couple of weeks of the campaign, we're, but we're going to fire 100,000 uh, public service employees. And then, of course, you know the result. It's funny, in Christina Blizzard's article, she says, quote, As conservatives, now this is, she's quoting Mr. Hudak, As conservatives, we attract that type of rugged individualist who doesn't pass up a good fight if he can have one. But it's uh, ultimately not that helpful, he said. Well, I just had to laugh at that. The PCs attracting rugged individualists. Well, you know, it's true that some of the left-wing pundits out there likened them to the Tea Party in the United States states, which uh, may attract some of those rugged individualists, but the progressive conservative party here in Ontario attracting rugged individualists? I don't think rugged individualists uh, give a tinker's damn about Ontario politics. They're out there making a living and chopping wood and <laughs> carrying water, whatever rugged individualists do. But to say that that party is made up of that group of people, I think Mr. Hudak again needs a reality check. Find out who's voting PC and why, and I think you'll find that there's not very many rugged individualists among them. That they're, they're very much like you and I and every other person we meet on the street, and very much the same as the Liberal Party, very much the same as everybody who voted for the NDP. The polls, you know, um, verify this. They're always neck and neck with the liberals. I covered this on the last week's show, I think. Or was it the show before where the, the graph of all the polls leading up to and during the election show them neck and neck, and anybody could have won that election. It's so uh, finicky, this, 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 uh, public, the public opinion when it, comes to, uh, when it comes to who to vote for. Christina Blizzard went on to finish the article saying voters may have rejected his platform, but Hudak says eventually the province will have to face the reality he talked about. Well, what reality is that now? That 
he's going to hire a million people, twice as many unemployed out there, that he's going to lay off 100,000 public sector jobs. Well, that's not going to happen. He wasn't even going to do it himself. So I don't think that the Liberals are going to do it. So the reality is, is that we live in a Liberal Ontario. We live in a very left-wing province. Even if they had voted for Mr. Hudak and his PCs, we would still be in a very left-wing province. No difference. No change. On to another article. Now, this one was by Andrew Coyne, who, not to be outdone in the rush to suggest how the Tories should change in order to win, wrote a piece in the June 23rd edition of the National Post, which was titled online as, Ontario PCs should move to the centre where they are. Now, Mr. Coyne begins with the amusing analysis of the other political pundits' call for change in PC policy, saying that their advice is an example of what has been called the pundits' fallacy, which holds that... The winning policy for a political party is whatever the writer happens to think is the right policy. Coyne continues with a term of his own, the politico's fallacy, which holds that the right policy for a party is whatever the winning policy is. Sticking your neck out there, Mr. Coyne. So, if the Conservatives cannot win with the policies they have, they should simply adopt another set of policies, the ones I believe in. After all, as everyone knows, the way you win elections, says Mr. Coyne, is by moving to the centre. And the centre, as it happens, is just where I'm standing. Unquote. So far, so good, actually. You know, it seems that Coyne is suggesting that any move by a political party to alter its policies just for the sake of winning is folly. And I'd agree. But, you know, uh, the reality of the situation is that the sole reason for Mr. Hudak getting out of bed in the morning, or used to be, (laughs) or Kathleen Wynne or Andrea Horvath uh, during the election, was to attain power. That was it, to attain power at all costs. But Mr. Coyne goes on. He takes the odd comment from the left that Mr. Hudak's PCs are as far right as the American Tea Party and tries to defend the Tories by splitting the invisible hair between what it means to be a radical and what it means to be an extremist. He accepts the left's portrayal of the American Tea Party as extreme. Coyne says that the distinction between radicalism and extremism is critical. Quote, radicalism, after all, A determination to break with the status quo, offering sweeping change in its place, is sometimes called vision. Vision is radicalism that sells. What the public wants to know is not whether you are radical, whether you are extreme. The first is a matter of ideology, the second of temperament. Whatever your views, the public is more interested in how you arrived at them and how you would apply them, unquote. So, Let me get this straight. Extremism is a matter of temperament? Define your terms, Andrew. First of all, radical. Let's look that up online. Cheap dictionary. Radical, advocating or based on thorough or complete political or social reform, representing or supporting an extreme section of a political party. Now, extremism defined belief in and support for ideas that are very far from what most people consider correct or reasonable. And temperament, a person's nature, especially as it permanently affects their behavior. Synonyms are disposition, nature, character, personality, makeup, constitution, mind, spirit. 
So by my reading of the definitions of radical extremism and temperament, there's very little difference between radical and extreme. If anything, radicalism is much more of a fundamental shift in politics than is extremism. Ideology and temperament do not present themselves as defining characteristics of either radical or extreme. Coyne continues, quote, Whatever your views, the public is more interested in how you arrived at them and how you would apply them. Have you been persuaded by the facts, that is, or just a priori dogma? Are you prepared to make reasonable compromises, or is it all or nothing? The prudent politician must find the overlap between what he believes and what he can realistically persuade the public to accept. I think Mr. Coyne has forgot about uh, the Harris Common Sense Campaign, where that was quite uh, black and white. He presented a a strong platform, and the people bought it and, and returned him to one of the largest majorities in his second term than this province has ever seen. So I don't know that people really analyze the temperament of a politician when they look at the policies and the platform of the party. I think uh, they always look at what's in it for me, bottom line. Now, my good friend Paul McKeever had this to say about uh, Coyne's confusing assertions, quoting Paul here. More muddled thinking from the now almost consistently wrong Andrew Coyne. Here he explains to us that radical is fine, but extreme is scary boo. And ultimately, he defines extreme as an unwillingness to compromise on principles, which he calls a priori dogma, combined with a desire to shock people rather than persuade them. And that stuff, he says, is a matter of temperament. Oh, but radicalism, that's fine. Radicalism's merely a determination to break with the status quo or sweeping change, but only if such determination or promises of sweeping change works in an election, and only if your sweeping change is a matter of being willing to compromise and be persuaded that you're wrong, all of which, he says, is a matter not of temperament but of ideology. So, if your ideology is to break with the status quo in a way that involves no unbending principles, no firm conclusions, and a willingness to be persuaded to change course entirely well, you're an ideologue and a radical. You heard it here first, folks. Squishiness is the new radicalism. That's by Paul McKeever. Agreed, Paul. Muddled thinking leads to muddled action. And if the politicos feel that they can redefine words to suit their purposes, then anything goes. No wonder politics is so confusing to the layman. The experts just keep making things up. You're asking me to believe that the incorruptible Catherine Janeway would betray her own crew. Not betray them. Save them from themselves. I brought technology to help Voyager get home. But the captain's arrogant, self-righteous. And her officers are so blinded by loyalty that they're prepared to sacrifice their lives just to deal a crippling blow to the Borg. But you'd never try to harm us. I've become a pragmatist in my old age. All I want is to get their crew back to their families. You wish to ensure the well-being of your collective. I can appreciate that. I'll help you. But it'll cost more than you're offering. 
What do you want? Your vessel and its database. I told you, I'll show you how to adapt to their torpedoes. Insufficient. If I let you assimilate technology from the future, there's no telling how events would be altered. You're willing to alter the future by getting Voyager home now. Oh, yes, but there's a difference. Do what all good pragmatists do. Admiral, compromise. Preliminary surveys suggest it's a lot like Earth during the early Devonian period. A lot of plant life, fish, some insects, but no predators or large animals. Pretty, isn't it? I don't see what's so pretty about it. I think they mean the trees and stuff. Quark, this is as close to paradise as you're going to get. All you need to do is to allow yourself to see it. I'll tell you what I see. In two words, exploitable resources. I suppose you want to cut down all these trees and start strip mining the entire planet. As a wise man once wrote, nature decays, but latinum lasts forever. Rule of acquisition number 102. Good lad. Now, I have some ointment in one of my bags, get it? What's the problem? Oh, uh, I get a mild reaction now and then. To what? Nature. Perhaps you'd be more comfortable sleeping on the runabout. I miss all the fun. That's much better. Now, if it only wasn't so hot. I hadn't noticed. It isn't the heat so much as the humidity and the insects stench of these flowers. I'm glad we could talk like this. There's nothing like facing the wilderness to bring people closer. I just love Quark. <laughs> the stench of nature. So continuing on with our journey away from reality and reason, we have an article again from the uh, this past Saturday's London Free Press written by uh, R. Michael Warren entitled, Our governments, especially the feds, aren't dealing with the increasingly cost effects of, um, in, you know, increasingly cost effects of climate change and few voters are pushing them. Now, before, before I begin, I think it's important for context to say who Mr. Warren is. He's a consultant. He's also a former Ontario Deputy Minister, Toronto Transit Commission Chief General Manager, and Canada Post CEO. So these positions should give some perspective on what Mr. Warren has to say. To wit, governments are not spending enough money on climate change. Now, he begins his piece in the Free Press on climate change with the usual fear-mongering, quoting, Hundreds of scientists from around the world caution us once again. We are failing to adequately address one of the greatest challenges facing mankind, and that is climate change. We are sleepwalking towards a hostile environment. Well, I'm going to stop right there because you know something? The environment is always hostile. I think humanity evolved somewhere in uh, the Rift Valley of Kenya in Africa. Basically, anything outside of that, we have to rely on our own wits and technology, wearing fur skins or whatever, or keeping out of the sun, because the hostile environment of the world is just that. It's trying to kill us. It's a hostile world out there. It's a hostile environment. 
You stray from the path of uh, technology, boy, and I tell you, you're not going to live very long, especially here in Canada. Continuing on with the article, our health food, wine, water, and an economy are at risk. Global security is threatened. Global security is threatened. He doesn't go on to say about how. Anyway, the latest report from the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change calls for a major shift away from fossil fuels to renewable energy. The world is already experiencing widespread and consequential uh, impacts from the equator to the poles. That just about covers everywhere. The, uh, the report said Canada will experience more warming than the global average and weather events will be more severe and more frequent weather events what like rain sunny days clouds i don't know what kind of weather events but we're going to have more of them and they'll be more severe severe runny uh, sunny day last month he continues the u.s national climate i'm sorry i just have to interrupt myself all the time reading this article because it's just so full of nonsense but anyway last month the u.s national climate assessment said climate change is not a distant threat it's a present-day occurrence that is taking lives and damaging property on an ever larger scale the reality is that climate change is already upon us warren says it is impacting our daily lives it's costing us and governments billions annually ice and windstorms heat waves heavy rains and droughts are becoming more common in canada they're causing widespread human suffering and record levels of destruction unquote so hyperbole aside and we have a lot of it here in this article I have to ask the question, what in the world can anyone do to stop the weather? There have been and always will be ice and windstorms. Hello, this is Canada. Heat waves, heavy rains and droughts. We call it weather. There have been and always will be things like tidal waves from earthquakes. There will always be tornadoes and hurricanes and hail and sleet and snow and light drizzle sunny days cloudy days and days when it would be better just to stay in bed and write silly articles for the london free press i wish i had mr warren's audacity perhaps i do to suggest that because someone's basement gets flooded when a river flows over its banks that we should all be heading for the hills and start building arcs and gathering two of each kind Okay, Mr. Warren, we are sufficiently scared. Let's continue reading your article. He says, Our warming atmosphere and the ecological disruptions that come with it are already impacting our lives in multiple ways. Okay, so this is the warming atmosphere, which, by the way, I think that they say may be up a degree. Um, He lists a number of things. Roads, sewers, and bridges are straining under the rigors of a tougher climate. Okay, Where's your data to support that? It's not here. Adapting aging urban and rural infrastructures to withstand our current climate and the worst weather ahead will cost taxpayers billions. How do you know that? How many billions? Where's your data? Blank out. Class action lawsuits have sprung up against municipalities alleging negligence in the management of climate risk. I haven't heard of one. Class action lawsuits against municipalities saying that they're negligent in managing climate risk? Hmm. I don't know about that. I haven't heard of one. Global warming is a key factor, he says, in the gradual lowering of the Great Lakes, the source of drinking water for more than 50 million people. 
Lower lake levels are also affecting shipping tourism and power generation. Actually, you know, I've actually heard the opposite. I remember going down to Lake Huron 25 years ago when you could walk out a good, oh, I don't know, 300 meters before you'd reach the water's edge. Now it seems like a perfectly normal water level to me. Not only that, um, a lot of people say that global warming, and he uses global warming here rather than the, um, the words climate change, so... Shame on you. It's now climate change, don't you know? But anyway, a lot of people say climate change would actually call for rainier weather, more water, rising sea levels. Um, so that doesn't jive with um, the other pundits of climate change extremism. Another factor, he says, more extreme weather is a financial and operating challenge for electrical generation and distribution systems. Repeated energy failures are costly and chaotic for business and the public. Well, again, where's the data? More extreme weather is a financial and operating challenge. Yeah, okay. So we have an ice storm now and then. I remember that one many years ago up in Ottawa. That was uh, quite the ice storm. But other than that, I, I, I don't know of major power outages here in London. I don't see a lot of that happening at all. Again, climate change means farmers have to cope with new pests, droughts, and longer seasons. Yep, well, you know something? It's called farming. It's called weather. Northern communities must adapt to a disruptive, warmer way of life. Heaven forbid... That's <laughs> that the North warms up. Now, I understand that there's an issue the way that they have built buildings and it's uh, dependent on the permafrost staying permanently frosted. And if it thaws, then there may be an issue there. But you know something? It's nothing that a jack wouldn't happen and just stick a couple of pieces of wood underneath the, under the house. Otherwise, I think that uh, they should count themselves lucky that the, the North warms up. Warm weather diseases such as Lyme, West Nile, and malaria are becoming more common here. I don't know about that at all. Again, where's your data? I haven't seen that. Um, and protecting our economy, environment, health, and safety means a wide range, wide range of government programs have to be climate-proofed. Adapting government services to cope with the effects of climate change is, a comp is complex and expensive. Well, here's where you and I will really differ in our idea of the purpose of government. Certainly not to do all those things. He also says, uh, over the last few years, summer storms and rainfall alone have resulted in a 600% increase in the federal government's disaster relief liability. It currently totals more than $4 billion in taxpayer liability and is growing rapidly. Well, you know, let's just stop here. To suggest that the government should do more to combat climate change because it is spending billions to mitigate the damage caused by bad weather is not argument for doing more to combat climate change. It's an argument for getting the government out of the business of providing relief for victims of weather disasters. What in the world are we doing spending $4 billion in government funds on cleaning people's wet basements or buying them new houses because the wind blew them down or, or flooded them? If the wind knocked down my house and I wasn't adequately insured through a private insurance company, I deserve my fate and should have planned better. It's not a proper function of government to, f to provide disaster relief. I mean, if, uh, if there's a, a major flood or a tornado like the one just recently in Angus, I mean, I can see the, the police coming in and preventing looting and robbing and, and all those kinds of things. That's a proper function of government, protecting people's rights. 
not paying for for whether acts of God and things like that. That that's actually robbing Peter to to pay Paul for Paul's stupidity of not uh, uh, insuring himself or building a house in a river uh, floodplain. Uh, you know, as far as the whole notion of anthropogenic climate change is concerned, Bob and I have covered this at great length in previous shows. You know, if true, then people should adapt rather than try to send us back into the dark ages as many climate change fearmongers would have us do. But I'll leave a more that more detailed um, analysis to our previous shows, particularly if you want to look them up on our website, justrightmedia.org, the shows uh, 132 and 134. Mr. Warren continues, giving these... Uh, Given these mounting, here-and-now, financial, economic, and social impacts, one would expect a concerted effort from our governments to address the causes of climate change, or at the very least to make adaptation a major commitment. Again, not a proper function of government. It seems that Mr. Warren will not be satisfied until there is never another rainy day, never another hot day, or cold day, or stormy day. If he doesn't like the weather, I suggest he move to a place that has no variation in seasons or in the climate, perhaps the middle of the Sahara. I understand that Southern California is pretty good if he can stand the wildfires. Mr. Warren continues, Canadians have one of the highest greenhouse gas emissions per capita in the world. <laughs> Newsflash. Canada is under a blanket of snow and ice for almost half of the bloody year. Of course we have one of the highest greenhouse gas emissions per capita in the world. We may be stupid enough to endure a Canadian winter, but we aren't stupid enough to do it without having the furnace on. Many people in the rest world don't even know what a forced air gas-fired furnace is. Lucky them. Of course where gas emissions are going to be greater than theirs. It keeps us alive. Here's the clincher in Mr. Warren's article to show just how over-the-top these people can get. Quote, One environmentalist asks, If you were 95% certain that your house was at risk of catching fire and there was something you could do to prevent it, wouldn't you do it? Of course you would. Yes, Mr. Warren, of course we would. In fact, I insure my home against fire even though the odds are far, far, far less than 95%. But this is just what we do in the real world, uh, what we call in the real world irrelevant. It's, uh, it doesn't follow that just because we insure our house that we would want to spend trillions of dollars, not billions, by the way, but trillions, on trying to prevent climate change. That's what we in the real world call a non sequitur. Is Mr. Waring suggesting that the dangers of a warming climate are equivalent to having my house catch fire? Yeah, he is. And this is why his argument to have our government rob us blind and send us into the Stone Age should be ignored completely. Mr. Warren's article is much ado about nothing. That nothing being the reaction our federal government is taking on climate change. And I am glad that Mr. Harper and the federal government is doing as little as it is on climate change. As a matter of fact, um, I think they got a lot of flack over the fact that they would, you know, uh, did not move on Kyoto. Well, good for them. I say kudos to the Mr. Harper and his government. And, and you know, uh, we we uh, here on this show always uh, lambaste uh, the conservatives and and the federal conservatives for a lot of domestic policies. Uh, we have lauded them on a lot of foreign policies. 
But this is one other policy I'm going to give uh, laurels to Mr. Harper and his government for not doing anything, not reacting to this emotional argument that Mr. Warren is putting forward. They may as well try to stop the tide from coming in. Hey, buddy, where are you going? My lunch break is over. You haven't seen? Seen what? New staggered lunch schedule. Dude, single shifts. No more fraternization in the break room. We can't even eat lunch together anymore. No more Wednesday, Friday surfing turf? Harry Tang is drunk with power. He could have an accident. I'm just saying, I know a guy very reasonable. His rates, I mean, not him. What do you think outside of the box, Anna? Me likey. What do you say, Chuck? Are you too crazy? What? No, I'm not going to have a guy rubbed out just because he upsets our lunch routine. I see. So you've already thrown in the towel. Cool. Not me, Chuck. I'm not getting pushed around anymore. Away. I hope you were aiming for the recycling bin, Grimes. Now that I'm instituting a new Buy More Green program. Tree hugging is all the rage these days. I plan on exploiting the burgeoning conscience of the American consumer. Well, that's very inspiring, Harry. I'm gonna be the one who breaks you, Grimes. You know why? Because you're soft, like pudding. I've been doing all these crunches, man. ready for you okay okay look you you do all the talking okay oh, relax who are they yeah they're not better than me of course not who are they they're nobody what about me what about you right then why not me why not you i'm just as good as them better yeah you really think so no <laughs> so what have you two come up with well, we thought about this in a variety of ways, but the basic idea is I would uh, play myself. I... <laughs> uh, go ahead. I think I can sum up the show for you with one word. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing? Nothing. What does that mean? <laughs> the show is about... Nothing. <laughs> well, it's, it's not about nothing. No, it's about nothing. Well... Maybe in philosophy, but even nothing is something. Mr. Dalrymple, your niece is on the phone. I'll call back. Uh, D-A-L-R-I-M-P-E-L. Not even close. <laughs> is that with a Y? No. <laughs> What's the premise? Well, as I was saying, I, I, I would play myself mm -hmm. and uh, uh, as a comedian living in New York. And I have a friend and a neighbor and an ex-girlfriend, which is all true. Yeah, but nothing happens on the show. See, it's just like life. You know, you, you eat, you go shopping, you read, you eat, you read, you go shopping. You read? You read on the show? Well, I don't know about the reading. We didn't discuss the reading. Well, 
All right, tell me, tell me about the stories. What kind of stories? Oh, no, no stories. No stories? So what is it? What did you do today? I got up and came to work. There's a show. That's a show. <laughs> How is that a show? Well, uh, maybe, maybe something happens to you on the way to work. No, 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 nothing happens. <laughs> well, something happens. Well, why am I watching it? Because it's on TV. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> okay, uh, look. If you want to just keep doing the same old thing, then maybe this idea is not for you. I, for one, am not going to compromise my artistic integrity. And I'll tell you something else. This is the show, and we're not going to change it. Right? <laughs> How about this? I manage a circus. <laughs> and of course, everybody should remember that particular episode called The Pitch from Seinfeld, where he wanted to pitch a show of nothing to uh, NBC producers. Uh, during the break, we had a couple of calls from uh, Kathy and Scott, and we thank you for your calls. Unfortunately, just time's not really... His, uh, we're up against the clock here, but uh, if you want to send any feedback or comments to us, um, perhaps we can cover it in a, in a future, uh, future episode. Uh, just uh, write us at feedback at justratemediate.org. You know, this last article that um, is, again, from the London Free Press, um, was by Glenn Pearson, and everybody in London should know Glenn Pearson. It was brought to my attention by Bob and uh, appeared this, uh, this last Saturday in the Free Press. There were two things which struck me about Mr. Pearson's article, which, by the way, was entitled Public Voice Not Waiting for Politics. The first was that he got away with quoting both Leibniz and Socrates in an article in the London Free Press. The second was that his article said nothing. It was like a Jerry Seinfeld episode. Mr. Pearson had the knack for holding my attention long enough to realize that I just read an entire article about nothing. Now, if I sound a tad disrespectful of Mr. Pearson's writing, know this, I mean to be. This is how some of it went. You decide. It starts off. Changes are coming. In the last six months... A significant and diverse number of cities' major institutions have undergone, undergone strategic reviews or worked out entirely new directions for their organizations. By the way, just a digression here. Uh, other than the city of London itself, at no time does Mr. Pearson reveal the names of these significant and diverse number of cities' major institutions. Not one. We have no facts to check to verify that what he is saying is true. But let's just take him at his word. After all, he was an elected liberal MP. Chief among them has been the City of London, proposed a city plan through the Rethink London process. Why so many all at once, he asks. Asked to speak at many of these sessions, I've come to realize that some innate sense was telling me the participants, uh, their community needed them now more than ever. For too long we've uh, waited for politics to right itself and get on with the business of building a city of tomorrow. We are still waiting. Until recently... Most major institutions watched political developments from a distance, weighing their options. It now appears that they realize they have tarried long enough and have moved ahead with strategic plans to assist them in recapturing London's imagination and potential. 
German philosopher G.W. Leibniz, who coined the phrase, the best of all possible worlds, made the powerful argument that, although only one world exists, many others are possible. If the one we haven't isn't the best, then let's work towards creating something that is better. A new and functional community marked better than, markedly better than what exists. I think you can get the idea here that there's a lot of uh, feel-good words in here, a lot of uh, phrases that, while they sound nice, they really mean nothing. He continues on, he says, Londoners could be forgiving the, for, forgiven for thinking their city has been underperforming uh, for a number of years. Yada, yada, yada. Let's skip ahead a bit. That's that, that by the way, if you're a Seinfeld fan, you'd know what I mean by yada, yada, yada. Uh, quoting Mr. Pearson, on issues ranging from the future, the Thames River to a more comprehensive integration of public health, from new infrastructure around the acquisition of, and distribution of food to a greater understanding of mental health challenges, from more connected neighborhoods to seriously addressing climate change. There we go again. Institutions are now weighing in with a difference. Yada, yada, yada. I'm sorry, but I just don't see anything here. I don't see anything in this article in, the, in Saturday's pre free press. What does he mean when he says, you know, connected neighborhoods? More connected neighborhoods. I, I don't know what that means. With roads? Is he talking about sidewalks? Uh, internet? Uh, community newspapers? What? what what's, what's that mean? Connected, connected neighborhoods. What's it mean when he says that uh, um, recapturing London's imagination and potential? So they all sound well and good, but what does that mean? London's imagination? Only individual people have imagination. Most of them have probably moved out of this town by now, <laughs> considering the past uh, eight years of this council and previous councils. Uh, and, and the potential? Well, Sometimes potential is driven by factors that the city can't really address, and they're global, they're national, like Kellogg's, uh, the plant closing. Um, that had nothing really to do with the city, per se. That was because of global trends. So I don't know about all these buzzwords. Let's go, let's go on. Here's where he quotes Socrates. Quote, Socrates confronted his own generation by asking why they continued to accept the world their leaders had given them, when they clearly wanted more. And despite every move to silence his voice, including death, a renewed fire was lit in citizens who demanded better. Now in a similar situation, huh? Similar situation to what Socrates was <laughs> experienced? I don't know. Now in a similar situation, the good citizens of London are looking to their institutions to prove responsive. They are about to get their wish. And that was it. That's the article basically right there. I left out a number of yada, yada, yadas, but um, I don't understand what was there. So the way I read it, it's some unnamed institutions in London have recently had some strategic reviews. What were their findings or conclusions of these reviews? I don't know. Why did they have these reviews? I don't know. How does, it, does this affect me and mine? I don't know. Mr. Pearson doesn't explain it. Apparently, just these these groups, of which he was asked to sit in on, got together and had a review. Uh, yeah, okay. Seinfeld has left the building, Mr. Pearson. I don't know what uh, what you're trying to 
what you're trying to do by suggesting that uh, people are having meetings out there and reviews, but it's not very helpful to me. So, I think I'm going to leave it there for today. <laughs> Keep reading the London Free Press for amusement. And as Bob as often says, join us again next week. Until then, be right, act right, think right, do right, and be right back here. Take care, everyone. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. What were you thinking? What was going on in your mind? Artistic integrity. Well, where, where, where did you come up with that? You're not artistic, and you have no integrity. <laughs> you know, you really need some help, but I, a regular psychiatrist couldn't even help you. You need to go to, like, Vienna or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? You need to get involved at the university level, like where Freud studied and have all those people looking at you and checking up on you. That's the kind of help you need. Not the once a week for 80 bucks. No, you need a team. <laughs>